0: Greetings, film fans, and welcome to another episode of the following feature podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Wilde, and I'm here every single week to give you a breakdown of all the latest film news and gossip. Plus, I try to review at least three films a week, which I feel are maybe worth a view. Sometimes I'm talking about them specifically because they're definitely not worth a view, but that in itself becomes a talking point, so here we are. Um, This week, there isn't really any kind of theme to the films, Um, To be honest, I wasn't really thinking about what films I was going to do, but once I realised that Borat was coming out, uh, you know, obviously, it's what everyone's talking about. It's a hot topic, so that's obviously going to be one of the films that we review. We also look at, um, uh, what's the other ones we do? We do uh, Juliet Naked, which is a film based on a Nick Hornby book, which is always fun. Um, And we also look at uh, an independent film from uh, England, um, Blue Story, which talks about rival London gangs and the futility of this gang warfare and, and what it does to communities and to families um so three really good films there to to review three films that i i enjoyed all of um so you know i'm not going with a negative review here i'm not going to go down one of these kind of like god how shit was the new mutants uh, as fun as that was this is a different episode for a different time so um yeah here we are um not really much to report personally. Um, I'm definitely not working on that movie that I was uh, talking about for so long. I was so excited about that. Um, And to be honest, it was something that I've been looking forward to for most of the year. But unfortunately, due to, you know, arrangements, well, you know, circumstances regarding the whole pandemic, um, I haven't been as needed as I expected. Um, And due to that, I've become attached to other projects, which means that when the film did finally come around to kind of asking if I could be there, I was unfortunately had to turn them down because, yeah. It's, it's a weird situation at the moment and it's a juggling act uh, for anyone that's working in the arts sector. Um, and I lo- a lot of people will be able to um, understand and be able to empathise with that because they're going through the same thing. Uh, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was that I didn't really see my... Uh, Creative outlet being something that I'd be able to indulge in again this year. Um, I've actually been quite lucky with some of the work that I've gotten. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, things aren't still great. Um, so looking forward to a post vaccine world where we could just get on with our lives and do what we need to do. But you know what? Whilst it is, you know, extremely uh, stressful, um, and it's a period just beset with anxiety and you know loneliness and it's it's a, a very very difficult time for everyone to go through but really i'm i'm trying not to get too you know depressed about it um it's a year that we just got to write off uh and once we have the vaccine once we're you know we can move on and, and leave this whole covid thing behind us then, you know, we'll be able to get back to where we were. We will we'll be able to recover. For some people, it's not going to be as easy as others. Um, and without the help of the government, it looks like it's going to be very, very difficult for a lot of people to actually get back on their feet. Um, including, and most especially, well, from from my point of view, people in the arts sector. <clears throat> you know, there's there's a lot of funding which is just not being granted to those that will not survive this pandemic without it. Um, And I'm talking about like sort of small independent cinemas and theatres, small like sort of um, artistic groups like dance groups and, um, you know, amateur dramatics groups, things that really do rely on a lot of volunteers and, you know, um, the favoured use of space. And there's a lot of things going on in this country at the moment where, you know, the, the arts have supported people through these very hard times. Whilst not being able to go to work or see friends or family, we've relied quite heavily on media and entertainment. We've relied on uh, movies and TV shows to kind of stave off the boredom. We've relied on music to keep us entertained and keep our spirits up. We've relied on books and comics and all sorts that have um, occupied our minds and given us something to focus on. And uh, you know it's a multi-billion-pound empire in this country, especially the film, um, em- the, f- the film industry, and um, yeah, the, the the government doesn't really see the need to support it. But at the moment, they they're struggling to actually feed kids, so I can't really say that it's shocking that they would let independent theatrical groups fall, you know. Fall through the cracks, so to speak. Um, so it's a it's a terrible time, um, and I'm trying to stay as positive as I can, and, and I'm I'm trying to make sure that I, I show as much gratitude as possible with the work that I'm getting because, you know, I'm I'm nothing special in this industry, and I haven't been in it for very long. Um, so I'm I'm having to appreciate the fact that the jobs coming my way are jobs that a lot of other people would walk over my dead body to get to. Um, so i'm I'm really grateful that I've actually had the opportunities that I've had and continue to have um, but it's involved some some really tedious um, experiences and regarding going for tests in weird obscure places at terrible times uh, over vast distances um, but we're doing what we can to actually make sure that we can still work in the arts industry um, and not only that that we're still providing people with um, the entertainment and you know the stimulus they need to kind of stay sane during all this crazy times. Um, I've worked quite a lot on uh, a soap opera in this country, and um, I found a lot of people were actually contacting me when the episodes ran out um, as to when they should be expecting the show to come back on TV. I'm I'm am an extra, I'm background, so. A lot of times, I don't even know what's actually happening in the show that I'm in. Uh, people ask me, like, sort of, what's going on? You know, I noticed that you're in that episode with so-and-so. Does that mean that they're kind of, you know, that's their storyline's going to be resolved soon? And I'm like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I don't even watch the show. But I know a lot of people are missing their entertainment. And a lot of people have been really indulging in a lot of um, viewings that they, they didn't have time for before the pandemic. Um, so, yeah. Hopefully everything can get back to normal but um unfortunately it's going to be a long time for the art, arts in this country to recover due to the fact that we're really not seeing the the um support from the government but then as i say they fa- they can't feed starving kids so they're not really going to s- feed starving actors um it's just something we're gonna have to live with until we can get a better government in i can't really see that happening either so c'est uh, you know what, what are you gonna do um Let's move on from all this. It's all a bit kind of stressful and a bit serious to begin with the podcast. Um, So let's just dive straight into some movie news, shall we? Yeah. Okay, and the first thing we're going to talk about is um, Bond. Now, unfortunately, this isn't some kind of good news where it's like, oh, it's going to be on BBC One this Friday. No, unfortunately, it's still being pushed back to April 2021. um, But it's now been revealed Um, Well, at least there are rumours going around that um, the studio explored the $600 million sale of the film to streaming services before moving the release date to April 2021. Now, why? Why would they do this? Well, they wanted to get the film released. They wanted to get it out there. And with the films, with the cinemas reopening briefly, um, films like Tenet and um, Unhinged and New Mutants came out. And made fuck all, actually. Um, Really, really, really tiny amounts of money uh, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you're looking at a film like Tenet, which should have made um, an easy billion over the summer, with it being such a huge blockbuster hit. Um, In this country, I think it's made over 100 million. But worldwide, it's really not doing very well. Um, And it's not that the film is uh, a flop it's just that with the restricted amount of cinemas still open um and the the amount of cinemas that were open at the time that was one of the first films that came out and people were very very sensitive about actually getting back into the cinema a place where they'll be stuck in a small confined room with hundreds of people for several hours um or in the case of Tenet it was two and a half hours um and that became a problem and it was something that was um, a big deterrent for people, especially when they saw countries like China that were banning all films being released that were over two hours long. With those kind of restrictions not being put in place in this country, uh, people were starting to believe that maybe the country was trying to rush people back too quickly and put them at risk. So, whilst a lot of us were very eager to get back to the cinema, for, for many it just wasn't seen, it, it wasn't deemed a very safe option, especially in regards to bringing your family along. Um, No one really wants to risk that Especially if they can't guarantee the safety of like Elderly parents or like Vulnerable children, you know, it's just It's a weird situation So yeah, the Bond producers were looking at the possibility Of selling it online because rather than Take a hit at the cinema and lose A lot of money When someone like Netflix comes in and says "We'll We'll buy that film off you for Six hundred million dollars At least you're guaranteed A return on your money But yeah, whilst that might have worked for some films, like for example um, the Tom Hanks film Greyhound which was supposed to be a huge cinema release over summer as well, Um, as you know as reviewed on this show, that was actually released exclusively by Apple TV Um, and there's been various others like that as well, Um, Disney Plus, as we spoke about um, last week, released their big summer film Mulan uh, directly onto their streaming service Uh, admittedly a premium access price, uh, which did put a lot, a lot of people off, but um, they did manage to recoup more money online than they did they they would have been able to do at the cinema, based on the the ratings of um, other films that have been released at, at that time. Now, they haven't made a lot of money, and uh, it hasn't really done the film's popularity any good because it's quite a small niche audience that are watching it. First of all, you've got to be a, an Apple Plus subscriber. Um, or Apple TV subscriber, or whatever it's called. Um, And then you've got to pay the additional, like, sort of, I think it's about 25 quid, to actually get the film. Um, And, you know, for families, it's understandable that that would be a lot cheaper than taking the whole family to the cinema with all the treats and everything that are included, um, as well as the ticket price. Um, But it was just one of those things, with a lot of people releasing a lot of stuff for free, or... Like within existing membership um, structures, it didn't seem very attractive to a lot of people that had the service for them to actually shell out an an additional amount of money and yes, as I say again it, it did work out better in, in the long term um, but it was just yeah it it just it created that kind of psychological um, barrier for people where they just felt un uncomfortable with paying an additional amount on a service that they were already paying for. You've got to remember, a lot of families to, you know, sort of um, placate their children over the the pandemic have signed up to more streaming services than they originally had. Um, Subscriptions for Netflix and Amazon Prime did go through the roof during the pandemic. Um, So, yeah. But we'll see. Um, Bond is not coming out online, unfortunately. And I'm kind of glad about that as well. I don't mind waiting until April to see the new Bond film because I don't really have high expectations for it. I think Sam Mendes was probably the best thing that happened to the Bond films for a very long time. But even saying that, Spectre wasn't fantastic. It kind of hit the, hit the mark on some points, but it was quite wide of the, the, the mark a few times. So, yeah. Um, but what they're going to do with it and this this final instalment for Daniel Craig's um, Bond, we'll still wait to be seen. But, um, yeah, we're going to have to wait until April and we're going to see it at the cinema. Um, Hopefully in a post-pandemic world, or or at least a post-vaccine world. Um, We'll have to wait and see what happens. Now, some good news. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Last Black Man in San Francisco both picked up awards recently. Now, I know, you're thinking it's something like the Oscars or the BAFTAs, right? Close. But it was actually the 7th Annual Location Managers Guild International Awards live from YouTube. Yeah, Um, so not very prestigious. Uh, Tarantino's movie was lucky enough to win the prestigious award for Outstanding Locations in a Period Film, whilst uh, Joe Talbot's uh, effort um, took home the much-coveted Outstanding Locations in a Contemporary Film Award. Now, I didn't even know these were a thing, um, and I really doubt Tarantino was there to pick up the, the award, but with films, as well as with real estate, Sometimes it does come down to location, location, location. Um, And, uh, you know, I've only seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I do need to check out The Last Black Man in San Francisco because I've heard some good things about it. Um, But with Tarantino's film, we did find some very interesting locations. I mean, it was supposed to be depicting a part of uh, San Francisco that... um, Was it San Francisco? No, sorry. It's Hollywood. Wrong film. Um, But there's parts of LA that haven't changed in 50 years so they were able to film on location and the ability to find those locations because it's one thing about finding a building which fits the period that you're filming into but if behind it is a brand new contemporary they can work around that quite a lot but um i believe with uh once upon a time in hollywood there was they, they wanted to use as little green screen as possible um, so a lot of the locations were as they are today um and that was that was really did add to the realism of the film. I mean, there was no point in that way you felt like you were watching a modern film set in the fifties. you looked it looked very much like it was a fifties film the everything was right about the fashion, the cars, you know the aesthetic it was just all there um and whilst I've never heard of these location awards. I have been, you know, obviously I've worked in film and TV for quite a while. And I've been to some incredible locations. Um, I know I've done a lot of, uh, I've done some Victorian stuff. Um, There's an old stately home in Luton called the Luton Who. I believe it's actually a hotel these days. Um, But on the back of this hotel, um, on the land, there is an old like, I don't know, it's like part of a small village, Um, a couple of streets and houses uh, which are from that period that haven't been touched in like over a hundred years. And they make an absolute perfect location. But it's kind of spooky when you're walking down there. I mean, you've got to imagine like my first time on location there, um, I was in full Victorian costume, you know, with the, the suit on my face and everything. And um, and when you step out and there's like horses going past and everyone's in costume, everyone's kind of doing their thing and hustle and bustle and making it seem real. Um, there is a moment when you look around and you think to yourself, like, I could have just literally been transported back in time and I wouldn't know the difference. Um, there's nothing about it that really says to you, like, kind of, well, obviously this is fake. Um, the, look, the, the sets are, are incredible. And, you know, yes, sets can be made to look extremely realistic, um, I actually had to prove to someone on the set of The Soap Opera that it was actually a fake set. And they didn't believe me, and I just ran up to one of the houses and wobbled the entire wall, which, yeah, you should have seen the look on their face, um, just to kind of destroy their their understanding of what's real and what's not. Um, I think it took them most of the day to recover from that. But, um, yeah... I understand that locations, you know, getting a good location for your film um, is huge. So, but I mean, did anyone else know that these were awards? I'd love to see what the ceremony's like. I would love to see where they held the ceremony. Obviously, you know, it was broadcast on YouTube, but this is the seventh annual one. So if I was invited to this thing and it turned out to be like, um, you know, a, a two-star hotel off a motorway near the services, I'd be very disappointed. The irony would just be unbearable. Anyway, on to more news. Michael B. Jordan looks like he's going to be directing Creed Three. The actor, who for many years has worked under the director Ryan Coogler, will be taking his place for the third installment of the popular boxing franchise. Um, Jordan, who worked with almost well, he's worked on pretty much all of Coogler's films, including Fruitvale Station, which we reviewed on the show. Uh, black Panther, as well as the first two Creed movies, is looking to make more moves behind the camera. After it was announced that he will be producing the new Static Shock live-action movie. Now, if you're not aware, uh, Static Shock is a popular DC character who was a huge hit in 2000 when his animated show uh, proved very popular. It's one of the it's one of the the only um, or at least very few superhero superhero shows that starring a black character. Um, so this is like 20 years ago. This is before we had the likes of Black Panther on screen. Um, Static Shock had a short run. I think it was four seasons um, on the Cartoon Network or... I Was it Nickelodeon? Anyway, it was a hugely popular show. And it is refer- returning in a kind of like um, digital format. Um, but uh, DC Comics have been very keen to um, do something more with the character that, that has such a huge fan base. So they're looking to make a live action film which um, Michael B. Jordan is at the moment only set to executively produce which basically means he's part of the the company that's uh, funding and you know helping put the whole thing together. Now whether he'll actually have a part in the film remains to be seen. He definitely won't be playing the title character because I believe he's 14 years old but it's a great opportunity so and I'm sure he's looking to do what he can to make sure that it this is this opportunity goes to the right person, and that it is something that can have the same kind of success as Black Panther has had um, in regards to like having representation in cinema. So yeah, very much excited about that. But I'm more excited about Creed three, to be honest, because the first two films were very good. Um, I really enjoyed the the you know because they're basically a spin off from the Rocky series, and. Um, Every time we thought we'd seen enough of Rocky, they'd announce another one, and as much as we'd kind of roll our eyes and bemoan the the obviousness of what they were going to do with it, we'd still turn up and watch them. I mean, that's how he managed to get five or six of those fucking things. Was it six? How many of those? Anyway, uh, yeah, no word if um, Stallone's going to be in it or not. Uh, I think he might be. Did he die in the second one? He didn't die, did he? Did he die? You know, I don't really remember that movie too well. Um, I just remember it being like the return of Dolph Lundgren. If he dies, he dies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one because Michael B. Jordan is a, is a hot property at the moment and he doesn't seem to be involved in much that sucks. So um, maybe that is something worth getting excited about. We will have to wait and see. Um, and my final bit of news. Um, something that caught my eye because... I. You know it didn't interest me at first, but will you ever, you ever catch like a glimpse of a headline? And you're like, Yeah, whatever, and then you, you leave it alone, but you come back and you're like, Wait, what, what What did that say? Well, Ben Wheatley, who for me is one of the best directors in the UK right now, absolutely, he's got this edgy kind of like weirdness to him. Um, and he's the acclaimed director of such dark and edgy hits as um, High Rise. Uh, Free Fire, and current Netflix top 10 horror remake, Rebecca. And he's he's actually going to team up with Jason Statham for The Meg 2. Yes, they're making a sequel to what I lovingly refer to as Bigger Jaws. Um, Wheatley, who's been rumoured to be working on the follow-up to 2018's Tomb Raider reboot, looks now to be satisfying his blockbuster craving with a big CGI fish, which we can only you know, Hope um, receives an underwater roundhouse kick from Statham. Um, I, don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen the first one yet. That's my problem with this. Um, I thought the first one had such terrible reviews and was such a waste of time that it would just get swept under the carpet and no one would ever talk about it again. Um, but it has picked up quite a cult fan base. Um, you know, it's one of those, I mean, it's certainly not Jaws. Um, but it's certainly not Sharknado either. So I guess there was a, a, a nice middle ground there where it's found its audience and there's enough of them that a sequel would be worthwhile. But to put it in the hands of Ben Wheatley is something that it's just a little bit weird. You know, I mean, it's just, it doesn't seem like it's his... Area, it's not his genre, so for that reason, I'm really looking forward to it. Like, I'm gonna go and watch, I, I might watch the Meg tonight just so I can get an idea of you know what Bigger Jaws is all about. Um, because I will definitely watch the sequel, I'm excited about that. I this guy has he has such a weird way with um creating quite you know slimy characters um people who just have no real um what's the word i'm looking for they're beyond reproach you know they're just they're just the worst kind of people um and even though they can be like the protagonist of a film you do find yourself thinking to yourself like if they die they die yeah oh, maybe i do have something in common with Dolph luncheon anyway um for i i absolutely fucking love free fire um and you know what i'm i'm the more I think about it right now, the more that's going to be reviewed next week. Okay, so don't don't be surprised And next week I'm talking about The Meg and Free Fire. Um, I also need to watch the Chicago 7 film as well. I just felt like I'd had enough Sacha Baron Cohen this week. Um, but I do need to watch that. So, good God. Yeah, lots of films to watch. But um, Ben Wheatley uh, has such a... Have you ever seen films like Kill List and things like that? You know that... His films are not, they're not the the most happiest, brightest films to watch. They're usually very bleak, um, depicting some quite horrible encounters uh, with some quite terrible people. Um, So, yeah, I've got no idea what he's going to bring to the the, the Meg franchise. Um, Except to say that it's going to be definitely worth a watch. Um, So, yeah. We'll keep an eye on that one as it develops. I mean, as I say, he was supposed to be doing the, the, the follow-up to Tomb Raider. Why, I don't know. Um, I think he's just looking to kind of do a, um, a a good cinema film, which, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to achieve. I'm trying to, I'm trying to rationalize it in my head. I guess there's just a part of him that just wants to give it a go and wants to just, you know, be unpredictable and, and try to mix things up a little bit. I haven't seen Rebecca yet. Um, I know that's a a remake of a Hitchcock film, and it's proven quite popular on Netflix at the moment. So maybe that makes the list for next week. I don't know. But um, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one. And if it does happen, yes, I will be going to see it. Absolutely, 100%. But for now, that's it for the movie news for this week. Um, So let's move on some film reviews. And we're kicking off quite predictably with Borat's subsequent movie film, which is the sequel that we didn't know we wanted and didn't know we were getting. Uh, Having seemingly brought huge shame to Kazakhstan, we find our hero at a labor camp where he is serving a life sentence. One day, the government sent for him and he is given an opportunity to redeem himself. Having seen the new US President align himself with all of the world's most deplorable leaders, Borat is tasked with gifting the President Trump uh, with a famous monkey porn star in return for talks with the glorious leader of Kazakhstan. But things don't go according to plan. And he must instead groom his daughter to be the ultimate present to sweeten relations between the two nations. All seems to be going to plan until a deadly virus causes Borat to shack up with two conspiracy theorists, whilst devising a plan that prevents his government from executing him in a most ridiculous way that his new American friends find believable and concerning enough to join forces with him to carry out his mission. Now, I wrote that. That's that's my little synopsis of the film. But even reading it back, I'm like, was it really that fucking ridiculous? Yes, it fucking was. It was absolutely... I mean, if you've seen the first Borat film, um, you know kind of what you what what to expect from this. But still, it catches you off guard because what happens in this film? Um, well, what happened in the first film? We thought we were going to get a series of sketches. We were so used to um, uh, Sacha Baron Cohen uh, doing all these different characters and stuff. In this country, especially, we grew up with him being on TV. Uh, you know, he, he did Ali G. Um, And he did uh, a bunch of other characters as well that were all, you know, really great at taking the piss. Um, But they always had some kind of significant either sociological or political stance that wasn't really revealed until you, like, you got to the end of it and you're able to take the whole thing in. You're like, you know what? I should vote Labour. It's one of those weird kind of... I'm, I'm I'm not saying that that's what the films or Ali G was suggesting. I'm just saying, like, sometimes it kind of... You you think you're watching a silly thing about a rude boy trying to, you know, embarrass himself in front of some political leaders. But then after a while, you're like, maybe there are parts of socialism that we can introduce in this country to make it a better place to live in for all of us. Okay, it's one of those. It kind of takes you off guard. And what was lovely about the first Borat film, unexpectedly, it had a plot. That was the first thing that I did not see coming. It had a plot. And it had a good plot as well. A plot that was clever enough to carry the story forward, whilst introducing all these elements that allow him to have these seemingly sketch-like encounters with people, um, but with this disarming charm of of the Borat character, who is able to, you know, allow people to, you know, show their true colors and really, um, come out as as the people they really are. Um, and it caused a lot of controversy and a lot of legal action afterwards as well, especially from Kazakhstan, who felt massively insulted. Um, and with uh, one thing as well, it had it had a certain sweetness to it and a certain charm, where uh, whilst he was just being silly um, and putting himself out for ridicule, it kind of showed this this warmth and heart to the innocence of Borat. Um, and how even someone as ridiculous as that when exposed to like the harsh truths of uh, you know bigotry and misogyny and um, all these kind of different class related um horrors that are are currently you know rife in the world and and everywhere you look it really kind of showed he, he was able to show it in a light or through the eyes of someone that um, is a bit too naive to really appreciate how how deep these problems actually run through our, our countries. Um, so it, it really did work, and it was a huge success. A lot of people will only refer back to it for its grotesque moments of, um, you know, just stupid toilet humour and um, obscene uh, public inc- incidents, which just, you know, they're there for laughs. And it's great, but it was, it was a great, funny film with a lot of sweetness and charm. But it did have a, a, a huge message, which really did carry through um, and uh, cause a lot of talking points, which is the point that Sacha Baron Cohen's trying to go for. He's trying to get people talking about things that they're not paying attention to right now. Um, and with the upcoming election in America, it was the perfect time to be doing a new Borat film. Now, I don't think he really expected things to go the way they, they did. I really do feel that the point where um, they do end up uh, dealing with the pandemic was an unexpected... I mean, it was an unexpected U-turn for the, the, the world's population in general. But the way the film's seemingly adapted to that situation to create... Um, you know, to help the narrative go still in the same direction, but on a different route, uh, was absolutely genius. And... um What Sacha Baron de done here, he's he's used a few other disguises to ensure that um, the popularity of Borat doesn't dominate the film uh, and stop him from being able to achieve the things he needs to achieve. And one of the things he's done in this film, which I thought was absolutely fantastic, was the introduction of his daughter. Um, Now, I say daughter, um, you know, it's not obviously um, the director's daughter, but... um, there's a, uh, an actress, uh, Maria Bakalova, plays his daughter Tuta in this film, and basically, you know, she's supposed to be the the gift that he's giving to um, the American government in order to, um, you know, improve relations with Kazakhstan. Now, in the trailer, you do see her talking every now and again, and you do get the impression that she's going to be a big part of the film. Um, but Tuta, or played by Maria. Dominates the film. In fact, she steals this film from under um, Sacha Baron Cohen's very big face. I was going to say his his chin. Um, but, so I just looked suddenly to my right to a picture of him on my laptop screen and I'm like, he does have a big face, doesn't he? But anyway, it's the role she plays and it's the ability she has to um, go go where she's Un, like people are unsuspecting of her motives um and she does able she she does able she is therefore able to um you know do things that borat couldn't do he she can expose um women as as much as borat is exposing men um and putting them um, their their conservative ideals under a microscope um and she's able to use this disguise of being like sort of the naive um, girl from a backwards country that doesn't quite understand things. And she, what she does is she allows people to explain the world as they see it and the way they feel it should be. So they're able to impress upon her their beliefs and their, um, you know, political ideals and, and sociological and religious ideals um, in a way that they feel is presenting a very fair and... Um, you know, appealing way of life. And I think that's the problem with a lot of um, conservatives, especially religious conservatives in America and England, is they feel that their way of life is pure and, you know, brilliant. And that by telling people from other countries, from like third world countries and um, from um, Middle Eastern countries where the culture is so vastly different that what they see as, as the right way of living life is, um, you know, they're benefiting these people by, by sharing these ideas, um, but they're ignorant to the idea that they might be so, somewhat patronising or condescending um, to entire nations and entire um, historical, you know, backgrounds. Um, so you do see a lot of this in the film. You do see a lot of people coming out and, like, sort of saying things on camera, which you think to yourself, like, if they're not actors, they are never going to recover from this. And there are some real amazingly shocking moments, which, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen is fantastic for getting people to do. There is one bit where, um, I mean, you know about this controversy in America where um, certain people who make cakes have refused to make cakes for same-sex weddings. Um, uh, cakes that, um, you know, promote that kind of, um, you know, the LGBTQ uh side of things and there's been a lot of um controversy where they've been saying that it's their right and it's their religious freedom to deny people service based on their sexual preference um so it's it was very 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 interesting to see um borat at one point go into a bakery and right right there on camera he asked for a chocolate cake, and he asked them to to personalise it, and the lady, quite happily, writes in icing, um, the Jews will not replace us. She actually just fucking writes it, um, and then adds a couple of smiley faces! Holy fuck! And there's- there's things like that throughout the film where you're just like, oh, you- oh, fuck. You're famous now for being that person. Um, Congratulations. Um, as we saw from the first film, those frat boys on the bus who started saying a load of really, really ignorant things regarding slavery and, and, and you know, races. Uh, they they tried to sue, but really they couldn't do anything because they were representing their own point of view and they were saying it in their own words. You know, Sacha Baron Cohen gets accused of, um, like, uh, trying to entrap people and um, try to manufacture situations which make people look bad. But really, all he ever does is get them to show their true colours. Now, he, he usually is in disguise and he usually, um, you know, baits them by being, representing um, something which they personally don't agree with. Um, when he did the Ali G thing uh, to begin with in, in the UK, a lot of people felt really uncomfortable around someone that they, they saw was of like working class, um, you know, racially ambiguous um and maybe um indulged in uh, a lifestyle which they would not agree with and so it brought out that that side of them in the interviews which um made them respond in a way which they probably wouldn't have done with someone if they were just in, like if sasha had turned up in a suit and he was asking these same questions in a very polite manner they would probably give more leveled answers back to him um to, and to ensure that they save face but what he's really do is making people feel like they're above him and that they can talk down to him, and that's when they really show who they are. Um, worked great with Ali G, as I say, in this country for the whole classist thing, but when he decided to play what was what would be interpreted as like sort of a backwards Middle Eastern character um, from a, a, a culture that, you know, even he exaggerated how backwards it was. Um, what he's done there is he's he's really shown some of these americans um for what they really are um and i'm not saying it's an american only trait it's something that's um suffered around the world this this whole you know right wing um religious point of view it's it's very and i'm not saying as well that religion is a bad thing but it's just the way it gets used the way it's weaponized in order to um, perpetuate certain ideals to the detriment of certain demographics that's the huge problem that i have with with that kind of community um and so i thoroughly enjoyed this film because not only does it really do a, a fantastically inc- incredibly clever job of of addressing those issues and exposing those kind of people but it also manages to have that that levity that humor that kind of gross out fun that we really enjoy from these films um, and it also has that, that sweetness and that heart to it. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is very clever at bringing in peripheral characters that, like the, the, um, the ones that end up being um, portrayed in a, a very negative way, um, he also manages to find people that he can portray in a very, very positive way. And he does the exact same thing with them. Uh, he shares the exact same views in the exact same medium, and the response he gets back... Is a more liberal, compassionate, considerate—dare um, I say it—more Christian um, perspective, where it's all about turning the other cheek and and um, you know helping those who need the help most, um, and being true to yourself and and being honest and sincere about your own principles and standing up for them, and believing that you are a person of value and having rights, something that um, the Tutor character is able to really kind of bring out of people. And really, Maria Bakalova, I'm trying not to say that too fast because I I know I'm going to say Balaclava. Um, Maria Bakalova is absolutely fantastic. She really does stand out in this film. And she has some moments where you just think to yourself, wow, I'm sure even Sasha was there looking at her at certain points thinking, wow. Because she knocks it out of the park. She does such a fantastic job. Um, yeah give that a look it's on Amazon now it's been released exclusively that's not behind any other paywall or anything like that if you've got Amazon Prime you can watch it right now for free so do that because I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it absolutely 100% now our next film uh, Juliet Naked is a film based on the Nick Hornby book of the same name and it tells the story of Annie played by Rosie Byrne at uh, the long-suffering girlfriend of Duncan played by Chris O'Dowd who is completely obsessed with the acclaimed yet mysteriously reclusive rock star Tucker Crow. Annie is just about at her wit's end with her job as the creator of a very small and unpopular museum but whilst contemplating her future her boyfriend reveals a huge secret that all but destroys their relationship and with the catalyst of terrible events being uh, the arrival of a very rare acoustic version of his favourite musician Annie decides to post a harsh and unpopular opinion of, of this new album online. Achieving the desired effect of upsetting his fans, Annie is a little shocked to receive an acknowledgement from the real Tucker Crow, played by Ethan Hawke, who praises her honesty. Suddenly, a most unexpected friendship builds between two people from different worlds who might have found each other well, they might have found in each other what they never realized they wanted in life. But will Duncan have to? What will Duncan have to say about the fact that his ex is now hosting his hero, and he's not invited? Now, this one I kind of watched by chance. I hadn't really heard anything about it, um, but once I realised it, it was based on the Nick Hornby book, if you're not aware, Nick Hornby books have been turned into loads of different films. Um, the most famous I think being High Fidelity. Um, which had John Cusack playing John Cusack and Jack Black in, I think one one of his very first ever big film roles. Um, there, there's also been about a boy, which had Hugh Grant and Nicholas Holt in one of his very first acting roles. Oh, it seems to be a trend here. Um, now Nick Hornby's books, um, they're very very popular in this country, and they seem to have this kind of uh, light-hearted, very minimalist simple kind of plots which involve some very wonderfully colourful characters um who are extremely grounded uh and relatable um you know just going through some everyday but significant encounters um and this is this is a perfect example of it as well um everything about the story just screams nick hornby the way that the uh the relationships develop and and how even the most um, dramatic people that walk into people's lives are themselves very ordinary and very plain. Um, and what this really does is, is it kind of it sheds a light on on people's obsession with um, not only their their hobbies and their their you know the things that they enjoy in life, but also how they're obsessed with their ego. Um, and how their own tastes, how their own, you know, desires in life kind of dictate who they respect and desire as a result. And um, in this one, we find the, the uh, character of Duncan, is his head's turned um, by those that think like him, um, and he forgets how much he actually has in common with his, his um, long-suffering girlfriend. And the amount that she endures and she puts up with, uh, he he is very quick to forget all of it when it comes to the fact that she doesn't have the same appreciation for this guy's music that he does. For him, it's everything. For her, it's just something. And that conflict is something that he can't get past. Um, even though beyond it, they have what is deemed a very successful uh, and enviable relationship. Um and the problem is, he's so entrenched in this obsession with this artist. Like, he, he has, like, chat groups online and, and forums and websites that he constantly indulges in conversation um, regarding this. That when she defies him the, in the worst possible way, and it's, you know, it's a justified retaliation. When she goes on, having exclusively heard this um, CD before anyone else, and slates it online... He, he feels like it's the ultimate betrayal for, for him before he's even heard it. His mind is made up that he's going to be the one who best articulates the praise for this most revered artist. Yet what he forgets is that, you know, he, he actually has an opinion and he doesn't necessarily have to like all of the things that uh, come from a place that he's so used to finding joy and happiness from. Like, for example, I love the Foo Fighters. They are my favorite band of all time. I've been to see them a dozen times. Um, I've got loads of. I've got everything they've ever released and some stuff they haven't released. That's how big a fan I am. I literally have albums worth of stuff that has never been released to the public. So, you know, that's. You know, I understand that kind of obsession with it. Um, however,. There are times when I will hear a Foo Fighters track, like the last album, for example, I heard back and I thought, I'm not a big fan. And I feel like, you know, with Foo Fighters fans, that might be sacrilege. um, That they might turn against me and they might, you know, see me as not being as big a fan as as I make myself out to be. I still think they're the best band in the world right now. However, there are tracks on their new album that I just skip. And there have been albums in the past where I've just been like, kind of, oh, I'll just play the songs I like. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. If you are 100% like, um, satisfied with everything a certain artist does, then your appreciation isn't for their art. Um, it's an infatuation with them as a person. And what we have in this story is Duncan doesn't really understand that uh, what he has is an infatuation. So when his partner puts out this terrible review, he feels like he's been stabbed in the back. And his actions after that aren't really, um, you know, they don't make the situation any better. Let's put it that way. Um, But because Annie has given an honest and frank opinion, when this rock star who's been secretly watching these people talk about how great he is, um when he sees uh, the first honest review he's ever seen for some of his stuff he's so excited by it that he reaches out and he tries to connect with this person and what they realize is that th- what they connect over is not necessarily um their opinions of music but just their opinions in general and as two human beings their ability to see the world for what it really is and not for what their ego tells them it is um what they actually find in each other is, is this honesty and, um, you know, connection, like a real sincere connection that they just couldn't find anywhere else. And that draws them together so strongly that um, everything else around them doesn't seem as big a problem anymore. Um, the problems she has with Duncan don't seem like a big deal anymore. The, um, the boringness of her job at the museum doesn't seem like a big problem anymore she's gained perspective through this new relationship Um, and so is he Uh, you know he's able to see himself as not this washed up musician anymore like he's a father Um, and that's a huge huge thing to achieve in life that's that's one of the biggest roles that you can play in anyone's life regardless of how much your fans may adore you if your family loves you your family comes first I say, if your family loves you. I'm, I'm kind of painting a picture there that I might not be loved by, by my, my family. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Um, although, you know, I was supposed to have a a plate made for me at a roast dinner today. I didn't get it. So, you know, fine, fine. That's fine. That's fine. I don't, I'm not upset at all. I'll, I'll eat my steak by myself. That's fine. But yeah, so what we find in this film um, is just a very, very sweet... Um, and charming story about people with a genuine connection that would never have really found each other if it wasn't for the mistakes made by others who ironically would have desired this encounter or this connection more than anyone. Um, Yeah, sometimes you find exactly what you're looking for in the last place you'd ever think of looking that's the story of this film and it's absolutely worth a look it's on netflix it's wonderful um and it's a it's a real heartwarming film as well um chris O'Dowd's fantastic he's brilliant in everything and rosie byrne gives an amazing performance you know she's absolutely spot on um and ethan hawke um i know we talked about him last week in predestination he's one of those actors that has this you know like, he can carry any character. He he doesn't overstate anything. In fact, his understatement of his characters is what usually brings them, you know, grounds them in reality and makes them so um, identifiable. Um, you know, you, you you gain a lot of empathy for his character even though you've got absolutely nothing in common with him. And he shows a certain amount of vulnerability that makes him seem less of a rock star and more of a, a man who just found himself in a world that he never expected. Um... Uh, and I think, you know, I think he gives a fantastic performance. All of them do. And it's a wonderful film. I'm I'm thinking I'm going to have to buy some more Nick Hormey books because I do love reading his stuff as well. Um, I think one of the, my favourite books is one of the short ones, uh, Long Way Down, which that's a, a wonderful, interesting, quirky little story, which did end up getting made into a film uh, with Aaron Paul. Um, and... Maybe Hugh Grant. Was he in it as well? I can't remember. I just remember Aaron Paul being in it. Um, it was a good film. I quite enjoyed that. But yeah, check it out. It's on Netflix. Um, and it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a good one. It's a, it's a very easy film to watch with the family. Um, there might be some language in it, so maybe not with the kids. But um, if you're settling down with your your significant other and you just want to sit there and watch a film, um, yeah, give it a go. It's, it's a nice romantic comedy. Um... And I don't really go for rom-coms too much, but this one bucks the trend slightly. Uh, So I definitely think it's worth a watch. Okay, moving on to our last film. And um, I've gone with a a British film, an independent film, um, an indie film, um, and a hidden gem. It's a a real box ticker, this one. Um, And it's not really something that we've really touched on too much on this podcast before. Because... British culture, um, you know, when you when you live in it, you don't necessarily look for it in, in movies, because movies are supposed to be about escapism. And the last thing I want to see is, like, a film that depicts the kind of life that I lead, or from the, the kind of neighbourhoods that I'm from, um, and the kind of things that I go through. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. Um, judging by my accent and the way I talk, you're probably thinking... All right, so you come from a good home, uh, probably went to university, um, maybe have a trust fund, rah, 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 rah. Actually, no. Um, I came from quite a poor background. Um, In fact, there was a a time when, um, you know, my mum, my sister and I were were technically between homes, technically. We were never in the street, but... um, you know, I've I've come from, from nothing. I'm not saying that I've come from nothing and now I've got everything. I still have nothing. Um but I'm a bit more possessive about it now. Um it's a bit like the whole C six Steve album. I started out with nothing and I've still got most of it left. Um so when I say I de- I identify with like some real kind of working class films about, you know, um hardships of living in a a tough neighborhood and and, you know the kind of gang warfare and stuff that goes on um it may i may not sound like the kind of person that can identify with that kind of thing but um i am from that part of southwest london although this this next film takes part in southeast london um but yeah i've (laughs) i'm gonna say it all right i'll say it i've seen some shit um not not good shit, bad shit. I've I've uh, witnessed shootings, um, and I've seen my neighbors get raided by riot squads. Um, I've seen people like full gang fights where people have their heads caved in with a brick, and it's it's just you know when you come from that kind of background, you're either inspired to to be a part of it, or you're inspired to get as far away from it as possible. I've tried to go down the latter route. I've tried to um you know give myself every opportunity I can to to improve myself and it kind of led me down this weird road for a while where I ended up um working for the government in accounts. Um sat at a desk every day wearing a tie. Uh and it was all you know I was I was aiming for betterment. I was aiming to kind of create a future for myself that would ensure that I didn't end up repeating, um, you know, if I did have a family repeating the same things that my parents went through. Um, my mum did everything she could to make sure that, you know, me and my sister were given every opportunity to live a better life um, than, than she had. And, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that kind of dawned on me when I suddenly had an opportunity to, to work in film I remembered as a kid, my, my dream and my desire was to become an actor. Um, and whilst, you know, there there was a lot of crime and drugs when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, you'd be hanging out with kids the weekend that were joyriding or like breaking and answering or just shoplifting. And the the peer pressure is huge in regards to... You know enticing you into that world and um i did remember having a conversation with a friend of mine uh shortly before he died actually uh how he noticed that i was one of the only people from our housing estate that um hadn't been to jail um didn't have an illegitimate kid somewhere and had never tried heroin and he pointed out those three things to me like it's remarkable that you haven't done those and I was gobsmacked, really, because if I'd tried, if I if I'd achieved any of those three things, it would have been a huge disappointment to my mum, who'd struggled so much to just make sure that we st- stayed on the straight and narrow. Um, but it was kind of strange that, whereas I felt that I'd kind of left people behind, and maybe you know in a way that had upset or insulted them. Um, They'd seen... They'd they'd gone down that path. They'd fallen into those traps. And for some of my friends, it actually cost them their lives. Um, I put a lot of... I've been to a lot of funerals for friends, unfortunately, throughout the years. Um, And so when I started watching this film that I'm about to review now, it spoke to me in ways that if you saw me, if you met me, you wouldn't understand how I identified with this film. Blue Story is the story of two friends united by friendship, divided by postcode. Written, directed and narrated by Andrew Onwabula, aka Rapman, this is the story of two lads, Marco and Timmy, who, despite being best friends, are dragged into the gang between the Peckham boys and the Ghetto boys. Uh, Having enjoyed a strong friendship for most of their lives, when Marco is badly hurt in an attack by friends of his best friend Timmy, He blames him for not having his back. Tensions rise and Timmy leaves Marco with a black eye to add to his injuries. But the level of insult Marco feels, something fuelled by his brother, um, his older brother's rhetoric, who claims to run Peckham, he attacks Timmy in retaliation. When this ends in more tragedy than planned, the two become locked in a game of cat and mouse, which will push both lads to do whatever it takes to ensure they get revenge. But, as they say... Those who seek revenge should dig two graves. Now this, this is a very powerful film because um, Rapman wrote this based on his own experiences of growing up in Peckham um, and being put in a school which kind of crossed certain lines as far as like the the gangs are concerned. Um, And if you ever know what it's like to be in in one of those postcode battles, you know where that line is. Like, sometimes, I've even seen it in the past, it's a physical line. Like, people actually go out there every morning and make sure there's fresh ch- chalk, so you know you don't step across that line. Or if you do, you get hurt. Or someone you know gets hurt. Or all your boys get hurt. There's there's this, you know, very short fuse with these kind of, um, this kind of gang warfare, um, which is only fueled by the fact that... Um, you know the working classes are treated worse and worse as time goes on. The poverty uh, poverty increases in this country every year, uh, whilst the wealth gap increases in a very coincidental fashion. Um, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And when you when you put people into a into a poor neighbourhood uh, where they're surrounded by desperation, um, where they they don't feel like they're betraying public trust by committing crime because they don't feel that um the world they're they're in they're not supported by the government they're not respected by society or their community they're not respected by um you know the police or the emergency services communities like this end up feeling isolated and when you, when you feel isolated, you feel very possessive over what you actually have. Because when you have very little, you will, you will kill to ensure that what you have is, is still yours at the end of the day. Um, and that kind of desperation and that kind of um, frailty in a community uh, causes certain unrest, especially when you have another community nearby suffering the same kind of desperation. And they're turning to the same kind of, um, you know, crime solutions like drugs and and shoplifting and and bootleg and all that kind of jazz. Um, So it becomes a territorial thing. You know, we don't have much. But if they're going to come here and take what we have, then we're going to make sure that they don't get it very easy. Um, Now, there is a lot of gun crime in this film. And uh, whilst it is a problem in this country, guns aren't a huge thing in this country. Um, they are a, a problem, but it's not like everyone open carries. It's not like you know people will ride around with a, a shotgun in the back of their pickup truck. It doesn't really work like that. People don't have concealed weapon licenses. You can't really carry weapons around with you. So it's quite shocking to see um, guns being used, but... This is a very realistic depiction of how guns do manage to get on the streets in in the UK um, and how devastating they can be. Um, As I say, I've witnessed shootings. I've witnessed, you know, something happening to uh, neighbours with two lads that that shot the whole place up and I saw the whole thing happen. So it is a reality that um, these communities and uh, these neighbourhoods are experiencing. But what they show in this film is that how futile it really is, um, and how this uh, self-perpetuating um, hatred between people who are, are literally on the same side as far as society is concerned, um, but how this territorial nature can lead to people doing things that they would never ever dream of doing. and sometimes even you know these loyalties they're they're so entrenched in in the upbringing of these these young lads. That when it comes to your best friend, if he lives in a certain postcode and, you know, you've got to do something about it, then you will do something about it. And it does lead to some very, very terrible tragedies. Um, But unfortunately, you know, there is not enough support being given to these communities that they can actually work their way out of these problems and you know create a better life for themselves uh, it's this this circle of um poverty and punishment which is experienced by the working class people of this country so badly that it just continues this cycle of um violence and pain and hardship and it's really, really difficult for these people to, to work their way out of it. Even if you end up going to a good school, society is a huge influencer over what you do with your life. And as I say, having been brought up in, a, in an area where crime was the norm, it was how people survived, um, and having witnessed some some terrible things, uh, you know, gang violence, um, the, the, the tragedy of, of drugs and, and how it can tear lives apart um, and just how what people will do when they're starving and desperate and, you know, have nothing left to lose. Um, so I, I, was, I was really kind of taken aback by just how good this film was depicting this kind of life um, without glamorizing it, without saying like, kind of like, oh yeah, this guy's the cool guy. Because he's got a gun, or this guy's the cool guy, because he sells coke. You know, this guy's the cool guy because he's got a secondhand BMW. You know, it's it's one of those things where like the the futility of violence and the 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 void left by focusing on materialism. Um, it's it's a weird weird situation to be in when you don't know any better because. You don't know how to break free of the cycle. Um, Society's not offering you an option. And when you come from this kind of background, um, you are kind of pigeonholed. I remember some early days of of, of moving to um, the home counties, which is where I lost my Irish slash Cockney accent. Um, I kind of realized that, to get ahead, I would need to become something else. I'd need to evolve into something else. Um, so I found myself distancing myself a lot from my childhood friends um, and trying to associate with people who weren't caught up in this whole cycle. Um, and there, I do have regrets from that, that time of my life because I do feel like sort of I walked away from people um, who I grew up with that I I you know truly loved in my in my heart. Um, but I knew that the life that we were all a part of was going to end up ruining us. And, um, you know, some of those friends I've walked away from, I've I've been to the funerals of. Um, so I know that what I did was right. Um, but it's just, you never forget where you come from. And you've always got to try to respect, the, you know, that where you came from made you who you are. Even if it's the bad things that put you on the right path, you need to respect that that's who you are and that's where you come from. And with these boys in this film, they're torn because their their friendships are so important. But they are who they are and they are from where they're from. And so they end up doing things that they don't want to do. And things that don't end up benefiting them in any way, shape, or form, but society has put so much pressure on them to to have some kind of integrity in some way, and if they can't get it through, you know, the, the kind of means that maybe some better off people would be able to, then they're gonna they're gonna take that respect, they're gonna take that integrity, they're gonna take that you know power, um, even if it's just. Small time. I may maybe not doing a great job of, of just describing this. I'm getting a bit caught up in sociological interpretations of the, the movie's intentions and how it wants to be um, received. Um, but it was a fantastic film. And let me say as well, fantastic performances throughout. I didn't recognise a single actor in this. Um, apart from one woman who I know from working on Holby. Um, she also played the Doctor at one point as well. Um... So, yeah. Uh, check it out. It's on Sky Movies now. Uh, Blue Story. It's a fantastic film and it's just a wonderful depiction of um, you know, what life's like in some of the uh, most financially deprived areas in the, of the country. Especially in the capital as well. You want to hear things about London that's all kind of la dar da and bowler hats and, you know, the Queen and corgis and beef eaters and the, the bridge and all that jazz. You really want to know what's London's like, um, what the real working class people of London are going through. Blue Story will give you a, a pretty fair idea of, of what it's like. Um, but yeah, as I say, it's on Sky Movies now. It's a fantastic film. I really enjoyed it. I found it extremely compelling. Um, and it ha- it's, you know, it's quite a tragic tale. Um, it doesn't glamorize anything. There are no heroes in this story. Um, there are just real people having to deal with life as best they can. the hand they've been dealt and that's it that is it for this week um it's a bit of a late one this week um it's it's probably not that late actually but because it's getting so dark so quickly (coughs) remember the clocks went back last night um it feels like it's middle of the night right now um but yeah i appreciate the fact that you guys are coming and listening every week Um, I'm still working on improving the show, as I've talked about before. You know, there is plans um, that we're going to possibly reboot it. Uh, The idea now is that it'll become um, not just a movie podcast, but movie and TV, and it might alternate week by week. Movies one week, TV shows the next week. Um, There is the thought of actually doing an additional episode, so two a week. I don't know, that seems a bit much, seeing as I'm very difficult to actually pin me down and actually get me doing some work but yeah that's all i have for you this week um kind of dragged on a little bit but i've, I've had some points to make so um thank you for being with us thank you for continuing to, to uh, support the show and keep listening to the podcast um do share it with your friends because we are available absolutely everywhere i'm even putting this up on youtube now as well um but you know we're on Deezer, we're on Apple, we're on Apple and iTunes, so that's all of you know, um, all of the Apple money uh, that I'm not getting any of. Uh, but we're also on Amazon Music now as well. We're on um, Spotify. Uh, we're on every single podcast app you can possibly think of, including iHeartRadio. Um, you can get us on in your Alexa now. So if you've got one of those in your house, just simply ask it to play the following feature podcast, and you will get exactly that. Um, but yeah Do please share this uh, As much as you can Do try to tell a friend about the podcast Because it would really help Um, and let's see what happens Um, if you've got any suggestions Or anything you'd like the podcast To be doing that it's not currently doing Or, you know, more of what it is doing Let me know Um, but yeah For now, until next week Um, I wish you peace, love And empathy, um enjoy the rest of your weekend, enjoy your week, and enjoy your movies. Take care.